At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Thanks for tuning into our series, The Follower's Trail Guide, Navigating the Path of Jesus, where we're asking the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? As we walk through Jesus' farewell discourse to his followers in the book of John, we'll learn to follow in the steps of Christ as he marks out the way of discipleship for us. So this week uh, marks the halfway point of the season for the National Football League. And if you're not a football fan, hang with me for a second. This is going somewhere, right? I know not everyone's a big sports fan, but I told you guys at the beginning of the fall that I was changing my fandom, that although I had been a lifelong Browns fan, this year I was fully embracing the Lions, and they were going to be my number one team. And so I've been watching every week, cheering them on, hoping for the Lions to do their thing. Uh, So far, it's been a pretty disappointing first half of the season. We can all kind of admit that, right? The good news is I have about 36 years of being a Browns fan that has prepared me for seasons like this. And what I found is that the journey of being a Lions fan for many years has been similar to my journey as a Browns fan, which it goes like this. Usually it starts at the beginning of the season with a lot of hope and expectation and excitement. You have new players, it's a new season, there's new possibilities, your team's on hard knocks, you start to buy into all the hype, you think they're going somewhere, and then usually the season starts out a little rockier than you like. A loss here, should have won that game, but then they'll win a game that kind of still sucks you in a little bit and you think, oh, maybe there's hope. And then it's right about now, right about halfway through the season where reality begins to set in. And the first thought you have is why on earth do I root for this team? Like, why do I torture myself every season? And there's some point of disillusionment at the losses and you realize where you feel like things are going and you're just like, all right, now it's time to start hoping for draft picks and maybe next year, right? And it's hard. It's challenging. And oftentimes, it's out of that anguish that you start to feel like, hey, what's the plan here? Like, what is actually happening? I don't know if you, if you knew this, but um, last week, the owner, I think it was last week, the owner of the Lions came out and essentially said, hey, we've got a plan, and we're going to try to continue to work on that plan. We think the GM, the coach, they're the right people. We've been in this rebuilding plan. Hang on. We think this is going somewhere. And as a new Lions fan, I thought, now maybe some of you are older, so you might be more jaded than I am, right? But I at least had the thought of like, okay, all right. They, they, they recognize where they're at and, and there's some sense of where they're going. Now that might just be being naive for ignoring the 30 years of history prior. But in the moment of anguish, at least having some idea of a plan gives me the ability to navigate the reality of where I'm at. I think oftentimes the journey of Lions football can be similar to the journey that we face many times in what it means to follow Jesus. Oftentimes, I've found over the years as a pastor and even in my own journey that a lot of times when people come to commit to following after Jesus, it usually starts with some semblance of excitement. They found something, something true about who he is that's that's met the need that they've longed for to realize the guilt that they felt God has done something about in in Jesus's death, the, the hope for life that he's provided for in his resurrection. And there's usually this genuine excitement. And then there's a journey where we kind of wrestle through that. But what I found is usually, usually we hit a moment where things don't quite go the way that we were expecting where the seasons of our life take a turn that we didn't anticipate. 
where we face something and where we think, wait, hold on, I didn't think this is what I was signing up for. And usually in that moment, we have the, what's going on here, God? What sort of team am I on? What, what is this all about? And, and there's usually a period, on, not just one, sometimes multiple times, where we feel and face a kind of perplexing disillusionment. And kind of wonder, God, what's the plan? Where are we going? Where's this thing all headed? If you've ever felt like that, you're in good company. Because Jesus' first followers actually felt like that too. We've been in this series that we've called the Follower's Trail Guide, where we've been studying through Jesus' last teaching with his disciples before his death, resurrection, and ascension. And in this series of teachings Jesus gives to his disciples, he's preparing them for what life will look like when he ascends on the other side of his death and resurrection to be with his Father, and they will be left to continue his mission on the earth. And Jesus has been talking about the comfort that he's going to bring, but he's also been talking about the challenges that they're going to face. And as he does that, the disciples start to hit a period of disillusionment. You see, their journey of following Jesus had started off with a lot of excitement as well. They thought they found the one, the Messiah, the one God promised who was going to come and redeem his people and establish his kingdom and overthrow Rome and finally bring God's people into all that he promised. And at first, that journey started off with some excitement. There was some challenge and rejection by the culture, but there was also all these high moments where Jesus is healing people and casting out demons and teaching them deeper truths of God's word. But he also keeps talking about this reality that he's going to die and rise again, and he's going to leave them. And that wasn't part of their plan. That, that wasn't how they saw things playing out. And so at some point, they start to get disillusioned and curious. They, they start to face some of the challenge. But the good news is Jesus recognizes where they're at. And this morning, we're going to look at a passage where Jesus actually helps the disciples in a moment of perplexing disillusionment to see that God actually does have a plan. It might be different than they thought, but it is going somewhere. Look again with me the text in John chapter 16. Remember in the verses leading up to what we're going to look at today, Jesus had spent time reminding his disciples of the reality of the Holy Spirit that was going to be given to them as a resource in the work that he was calling them to. But in verse 16, he turns his attention to a new topic. He kind of opens with a little bit of a vague phrase, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. Now Jesus, and on the other side for, for where we're at, we kind of understand a little bit of what Jesus is referencing here. He has kind of a double-fold meaning in this phrase. On one hand, Jesus is immediately referencing to his disciples the reality of what's going to take place in his death and resurrection. He's essentially telling them, hey, just so you know, in, in a little bit, I'm going to die. I'm going to be gone. Like, I'm going to be hung on a cross, buried in a grave, and you're not going to know what's going on. But a little while after that, I'm going to return. Now, Jesus has already been teaching his disciples about this for three years. He's had moments where he's referenced his death and resurrection, and he's reminding them of that here again, that this is what's going to come in. But Jesus is also using this as an opportunity to remember to train them for their life on the other side of his ascension. Because he knows there's also going to become a period where he's going to be absent. He'll be present by the Spirit, but physically absent. And the disciples will be awaiting for his return to reestablish his kingdom. And so Jesus is preparing them, in a sense, for both in this statement. But the problem is, the disciples don't get that reality at all. 
right? They respond. So some of his disciples said to another, what's this he says to us? A little while, you won't see me again. Again, a little while, you will see. And because I'm going to the Father, what is that all about? What does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. See, what the disciples face in these first few verses is is what I call the the perplexing nature of God's plan. Jesus is trying to give them some insight, but he's not giving them the totality. And it's perplexing to them. It's confusing to them. They they don't get it. What, What do you mean? Like, where's this all headed? I I don't understand what the plan is here. This isn't what I signed up for. The the disciples don't, they don't have a category for what Jesus is saying. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson says this about the disciples in this passage. He says, the disciples still have no category to allow them to make sense of a Messiah who would die, rise from the dead, and abandon his people in favor of another counselor. That wasn't the plan they thought they were signing up for. They thought political victory. They thought Rome overthrown. They thought Israel reestablished. Death, resurrection, leaving us, another counselor. I don't have a category in my brain for that. Maybe you felt like that. Maybe you had a sense where you thought, this is where I thought God's plan was for my life. This is where I thought things were headed. And suddenly it shifted and you're going, whoa, I don't have a category for a God like that. Maybe you face a season of incredible suffering. But all along you had believed, no, God's people don't face that kind of stuff. That's not what happens if you really follow Jesus. And suddenly you're left in a season where you're going, my life's falling apart. I I didn't think this is how things would go. And so you face the perplexing nature of God's plan. I mean, I love their questions here. What's he saying? What does he mean? I don't get it. I don't know about you, but I've had those questions, and I know you have, because I've been a pastor, and I've sat with enough of you to know in moments of your life where God's plan becomes perplexing, those are the questions you ask. What is God actually saying here? What what does he mean by this? I I don't get it. It's like the part where you throw up your hands and like, what the heck, God? But look at Jesus' response in their perplexing moment. It gives me encouragement in the moments we face. Look at verse 19. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask them. Jesus knew. I love this moment. This is the moment for me where hope enters the passage. I love that we have a savior and king who knows. He knows our questions. He knows our struggle. He knows when we face the perplexing moments and challenges of our life where we don't understand what's going on, that we're left in a place to say, God, I just don't understand. He knows. And he seeks to meet us in that place, just like he meets them here. He knows what their questions are. He knows what they're wrestling with. And so he steps into the moment to speak, to say, hey, I know this is challenging for you. I know you don't get it, but I have something to encourage you. I have a moment to help you. He doesn't leave them confused about the plan. He doesn't leave them confused about why they're facing what they're facing. In fact, he seeks to give them a path to walk, not only in their own perplexing situation, but I think in all perplexing situations that we often face as followers of Jesus. And he really gives them three things to follow him in as they seek to wrestle in the midst of their kind of mid-season struggle. We see the first one come right away in his words in verse 20. 
Look again with what he says, what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you. Now remember, Jesus has used this phrase multiple times in his teaching. It's kind of his way to say, hey, pay attention. I'm about to reveal a truth to you that might not be inherently apparent. You're going to kind of have to lean into it to see it and get it and wrap your heart and your mind around it. But he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. You see, the first thing I think Jesus invites us into in the kind of perplexing moments is that we're to follow him into perplexing sorrow. I mean, Jesus doesn't sugarcoat it for him. He doesn't start to say, oh, you're perplexed? Truly, I truly, I say to you, it's all going to be okay. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you're going to weep and lament. Those words paired together give an emphasis on the external expressions of grief. Jesus is saying, you're going to face moments in your life that are going to be so hard, so anguishing, that you're not even going to be able to keep that grief inside. It's going to pour out of you. Have you ever had those moments in your life where you're just left sobbing and you don't even fully understand why, but that your anguish is so deep, you can't even keep it in? Jesus is like, hey, that's what's going to come. Now, the world's not going to have that same response. They're going to rejoice in those moments when you're struggling, when you're suffering, when you're facing hardship or persecution or opposition for your faith. But you know what you're going to have? You're going to be sorrowful. A third term for grief here. See, Jesus is trying to remind them, listen, you're going to face really messed up stuff. He's real with his disciples. He knows what's ahead, and he wants them to be prepared. The reality of pain and suffering is and will be the experience of all who follow Jesus. None of us escape it in the brokenness of the world. None of us get through life without escaping sorrow, grief, pain, suffering, unexpected moments where the plan doesn't go the way that we thought it would. The path of following Jesus, the path that leads to life, remember he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life? That path also has tremendous moments of sorrow and tremendous moments of suffering. Brothers and sisters, don't let anyone ever fool you into thinking that the Christian life is just all happy, clappy, comfort, and ease. It is not. And I would never stand up here and promise you that if you follow Jesus, everything's just going to be hunky-dory and okay and easy. You will face hardship. That's the promise. And we have to be okay with that. We're going to see why in a minute. But I think it's important that what Jesus begins in the way he begins to minister to his disciples in their perplexity is saying, hey, don't be caught off guard by this. Because I think too often what happens when it comes to the areas of our life when we face sorrow and hardship is we want to avoid, we want to escape, we want to get away from that as much as possible. And unfortunately, I think we've oftentimes created or, or maybe not even intentionally, but we imbibe a culture that says hardship, suffering, leave those at the door. We're a happy people. In his book, Good News for Anxious Christians, author Philip Carey kind of highlights that reality that I think many of us probably feel at times when we enter into spaces of Christian community. Whether on a gathering like this or with a life group or having lunch with a friend, 
He says this, under much of evangelical teaching, many Christians now feel that there must be something wrong with them if they're suffering. Instead of being comforted in their afflictions, they are made to feel guilty because their lives are not going well. It goes something like this. The Christian life is supposed to be an abundant life, a life of victory. So you can't go around telling people that it really hurts inside. People at church may not understand if you start talking as if your life was a failure. You're not really allowed to be sad at heart because everybody says Christians are supposed to have an inner joy deep in their hearts, which is always there beneath all the troubles of life. So it can't be at the center of all your, it can't be that at the center of all your feelings is a great ball of hurt and suffering. Not if you're a Christian. And I think a lot of us feel that. We feel that reality. That it's not okay to not be okay. Which is why I think it's important that as Jesus ministers to his disciples in light of their own perplexity, the place he reminds them is there's going to be times where it's not going to be okay. Where it's going to be hard. Where suffering is going to come. But that's part of the path. So don't avoid it. Don't short-circuit it. Don't try to get around it. We have to be the sort of people that cultivate a culture that is okay with grief and suffering. That's okay with when people say, I can't do this right now. My heart is just so heavy. I don't even know how to move forward. And to not just slap the Band-Aid on, say everything's okay, put a smile on your face, and let's all pretend. But to say, I see you in your pain. And Jesus sees you in your pain too. In fact, he knew that it would come. So don't run from it, but let's actually lean into it. Because as you're going to see, that's where God wants to minister the most. When we run from our pain, we actually miss the moments in which God does some of his most dynamic work in our pain. And that's where Jesus turns in his next statement. Hear it again in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So notice the change here that comes, right? You will have sorrow, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So part of the path is sorrow, but the other part of the path is that in that sorrow, God works to transform it to abundant joy, and that we follow Jesus into abundant joy. But here's the thing I don't want you to miss, right? Because I think it's easy for us to skip over that. Don't notice the way it's laid out. Your sorrow will turn into joy. Not you will be joyful. That's not what he says. He doesn't say you'll be joyful. He says, no, your sorrow will actually be transformed in the path towards joy. That in the vein of Jesus, in following Jesus, he does a work in which he transforms our sorrow towards joy. Therefore, sorrow actually becomes part of the journey in which joy is experienced. This is why we can't short-circuit the journey. You see, if we're uncomfortable with our sorrow, then we miss the opportunity for actual joy. When we, when we try to disregard our sorrow, when we try to move away from it or, or move through it really quick or slap a happy thing or pretend like everything's okay and we just move on, we actually miss the opportunity for transformation. The problem is it's the transformation is where the deep joy is actually found. When you short circuit from the sorrow 
and just try to get to joy without leaning into the sorrow, you don't find joy. You might find escapism. You might find something that feels good for a moment, but it's only when you lean into the sorrow and you allow the time and space for God to work in the sorrow that he can then transform that sorrow into joy. And so what Jesus is trying to say is, you're going to face sorrow as my followers. Don't run from that. Recognize it's actually part of the path in which God produces the deepest sense of joy to you. And he goes on essentially to give an illustration to help them see that. Look at verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So Jesus seeks to give his disciples an illustration of how sorrow moves towards joy in the reality of childbirth. Now, there's two things I want to say as as we kind of lean into this illustration. One, Jesus is talking in generalities here. So I know even in this congregation that this isn't the experience of every woman or everyone who's gone through childbirth that we still exist in a world of pain, suffering, hardship. My hope is that even if you've had that experience, that you can see Jesus' illustration as helping you even as you face that sorrow. The second thing I want to say is, I know that I'm a dude. So I know that I only have second, maybe even third, fourth, fifth-hand experience in this. My only connection with Jesus here is through observation, not personal experience. But I have witnessed childbirth twice. And I have seen that what Jesus points us to here is in fact true. That in the reality of childbirth, there is a deep pain and a deep anguish that is experienced in the process of delivering a child. From contractions to the actual delivery itself, through the whole process, all of it, right? I remember when, um, when we had our, our uh, first son, Isaiah, and we went into the hospital. It was kind of a quick delivery because of some complications. And so, um, but, but Alicia, we were in the hospital room, and Alicia was in the process of contractions and moving towards delivery, and you know, she's feeling all the pain of it. And there's this moment where um, I remember very clearly she was sitting on this kind of egg-shaped birthing ball, and I was sitting on the bed, and I was holding her hands, and, um, and she was in the midst of a contraction, and they had her all, like, wired up, so you, you could see the, like, contractions on the monitor, like, peak, and then they would come down as she was, like, struggling through them. And so me, seeking to be the nice, kind, supportive husband at 23 years old who had no idea what he was doing— Right, was just trying to say to my wife, like, I saw it peak, and I was like, oh, babe, it looks like the contraction peak. It's coming down. It's going to be okay. Hang on, right? You know, just whatever. And I'll never forget, she just looks up at me very gently and just goes, it would be better if you didn't talk right now. (laughs) And I just thought, you're right. Like, I have no idea the pain and anguish that was experienced by her in that moment. I could see it but I couldn't feel it, but I know it was deep. I know it was hard. Both times I saw all of it, but I also saw out of that agony, the miraculous moment of when anguish turns to joy. Because I'll never forget when both my sons were born and when they took them and set them on my wife's chest. And what I won't forget is not only seeing a new baby, 
but I will never forget Alicia's face. It's genuinely one of the most sacred moments to see a new mother after all the anguish of childbirth hold their kid and to see a face that just moments before was red and struggling and sweating turn to smile and relief and joy. And to see the feeling that says, all of that that I just went through was worth it for this. And that's what Jesus is trying to point towards towards disciples. He said, listen, you're going to face sorrow. It's going to be hard. You're going to face moments in your life of incredible anguish. But that sorrow in me is actually going to be turned to such a deep joy that it will transform the sorrow into something even deeper and more eternal. I mean, that's his point in 22. So also, you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Again, there's a, there's a twofold reality that Jesus is trying to point them towards. On one hand, the disciples are about to go through a season where Jesus will die on a cross. Well, they will watch the Messiah that they followed for three years suffer in horrible agony. They will scatter. They will be grieved. They'll think it's over. And then he will return. He will rise again. And they will see him. And when they see him, they will find a joy in that moment that cannot be taken from them because they will realize the reality of what he's done by his death and resurrection. That he actually has saved them from their sins. That he actually is ushering in God's eternal kingdom. That he has conquered Satan's sin and death. And that's why part of the reason we see a scattered bunch of bumbling buffoons turn into one of the most powerful witnesses to the reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus because they saw it, because their sorrow was turned to joy in his resurrection. But he also reminds them, I think, in a dual way to say, this is also going to be your reality in my ascension and return. Once again, you will face sorrow in that time, but you will see me again. I will return to set the world right, right? That's our hope as Christians, that Jesus will return to finally establish his kingdom, to rid the world of sin, and to bring us into God's eternal new heaven and new earth. And so Jesus wants to remind, you're going to face sorrow. Hold on to that sorrow. That sorrow is going to be transformed into an eternal joy that cannot be removed from you, that will never be taken away. So don't lament the sorrow. The sorrow is actually going to lead to something greater. I mean, this is why Paul would come and say things like, for this light momentary affliction is not worth compared to the glory that is to come. Right? That there's something waiting on the other side of our sorrow that when our sorrow is transformed in the presence of Jesus will be so eternal it can never be removed. So hold fast. In moments of perplexity, when you're confused, when you're in suffering, when you don't know what God's plan is, do not lose sight of the hope that your sorrow will one day be turned into joy. It might not all make sense to you. Just like the lion's plan doesn't make sense to me. But you have hope because you've already seen what Jesus has done. And therefore, you can have hope even when you don't understand the plan, that joy is on the other side of sorrow. Now, at this point, you might be thinking for a minute, okay, that's great. I'm glad there's a plan. What do I do right now? Is that hang tight, sit here, wait, we'll see what happens? 
Well, no. Jesus actually then gives us a means by which we can begin to experience that joy presently in light of the fullness that is going to come. So part of the path, yes, from sorrow to joy, but it also involves an experience of that now. Look what he says in verse 23. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, look, that your joy may be full. Jesus gives us another truly, truly statement here. And this time, it's in relationship to the disciples and the Father. Here he gives them a promise. A promise to hold on to in the midst of their perplexity. As he's called them to follow him in perplexing sorrow and abundant joy, now he calls them to follow him into confident boldness into stepping towards the Father in a way that they can begin to experience joy in the present, in part in anticipation of what will come in full. What Jesus gives them here is a promise in prayer. It's a promise that he's been giving them throughout his teaching. That if they ask anything in his name, he will do it. That he will respond to their prayer. That their joy may be complete. That God might minister and work to them. He says, ask, ask of the Father, and he will give it to you. This is what I'm opening to you. Now, he gives a parameter, ask in my name. That's not just slapping in the name of Jesus at the end of a prayer. That means stepping towards God in his reality, in relationship to him, in covenant to him. But what he wants you to see is that as you come in my name, you have access to the Father, and that the Father will hear you and will respond and give you and you will receive and as that happens you will taste joy despite the perplexities of your life one of the great realities of what jesus has accomplished by his death and resurrection is our intimate connection and relationship with god as our father that though we were separated from god because of our sin jesus died for our sin so that we could be reunited with him. That Jesus didn't just stay dead, but he rose again to conquer Satan's sin and death. And then he ascended and sent his spirit so he might be present with us continually, that we might know the presence of God with us. This is what Jesus just showed in the passage before. And so here he reminds them in their midst of perplexity, listen, your sorrow will turn to joy, but one of the things that you can do to lean into that reality is to ask and go before the Father. What's amazing about what Jesus has done for us is that you and I in him have the same access to God in prayer that Jesus had with God in prayer. That if you're in Jesus, you can go direct to God the Father. Maybe think of it like this. Um, several years ago now, I, uh, I had AT&T as my internet service. And I remember um, going through a season where it didn't work great. I know that's a real big surprise to you that have AT&T. And it was really frustrating. And I'll never forget because I was trying to figure out, it would keep going out, it would keep clicking off, and I would call them. And you know when you call AT&T, it's like just an exercise in futility. 
Like I call and you talk to the one guy and he's like, hey, did you restart your computer? I'm like, yes, I already did that. I know how to work a computer. Like, did you do this? Did you, okay, okay, I'll send you to this guy. And then you'd get transferred and you'd wait 15 more minutes. And then that guy wouldn't be able to help you. Okay, we'll send you to the next level. And then you, and like, I, I mean, you'd go through like three, four levels. And I literally remember going through this season where it kept going out and it was like, I didn't even want to call. Like at some point it was just like, I don't even want to deal with this. This is stupid. But I'll never forget what changed for me. One day I was on the phone with one of the technicians trying to figure out what was going on. And he said, hey, here's the deal. Uh, I know you've been working on this for a while. If we get disconnected for some reason, I want to give you a phone number that if you call, will give you direct access to our highest level of support. So you can bypass all the lower tiers and just go right to where I'm at so we can try to continue to fix this problem. Well, that changed a lot. Because suddenly now, if I had an issue, it wasn't an exercise in futility. I could get to the answer and get to the reality to the right person quickly and immediately. Don't worry, I don't have that number anymore, so you can't ask me for it. It's gone, right? But, but, but it changed. That, that changed the reality because of the access that I was granted to deal with the problem that I was facing. What Jesus reminds us here is that when we come in his name, we can have confidence that we get to the right person right away. That because of Jesus, we get to go right to God. It's not some middle tier thing. That you, today, in Jesus, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, can have access to God the Father to bring your requests, your struggles, your reality to Him and ask of Him, and He responds to you. That's incredible. That's why Jesus gives us clearly the application in verse 24. Until now you've asked nothing in my name, but because of what I'm going to open to you, ask do it, ask. You will receive. You will receive. God will give you in response out of your asking in the name of Jesus. What is not exercised in our life or in our community because we have not asked? James says it in James 4, you have not because you ask not. If Jesus has made an access available to the Father, then our response should be, let's go to the Father with everything. Let's pray and seek God. And I know some of you are facing some hard situations and challenges in life. Have you taken time to just ask God? To ask what you desire, to ask what you need. Have you set yourself in his reality and gone before him? Or have you done that for others? The access we have to the Father should lead us into a place of constantly asking so that we might receive what God longs to give. Andrew Murray, who was a pastor in South Africa in the 19th century, in his book, With Christ in the School of Prayer, which I think might be the greatest book on prayer outside of Scripture I've ever read. So if you're looking to grow in your prayer life, I'd highly recommend this. He has some great words and encouragement in his reflection on this passage. He says this, Disciples of Jesus, let the lessons of this day enter deep into your hearts. The master says, only pray in my name. Whatsoever you ask will be given. Heaven is set open to you. The treasures and powers of the world of spirit are placed at your disposal on behalf of men and women around you. Oh, come and let us learn to pray in the name of Jesus. As to the disciples, he says to us, 
Until now, you have not asked in my name. Ask, and you shall receive. Let each disciple of Jesus seek to avail himself of the rights of his royal priesthood and use the power placed at his disposal for his circle and his work. Let Christians awake and hear the message. Your prayer can obtain what otherwise will be withheld, can accomplish what otherwise remains undone. Oh, awake and use the name of Jesus to open the treasures of heaven for this perishing world. Learn as servants of the king to use his name. Whatsoever you shall ask in my name that will I do. God will answer. So seek and ask. Why? Jesus gives us then the point at the end of it all, that your joy may be full. See, what Jesus reminds us as he calls us into following him is that the way of Jesus ultimately leads to the fullness of joy. Sorrow will be transformed to joy. And that in prayer, even now, we can begin to experience joy as we ask and receive from the Father. I can give you testimony to this. Not because I'm some super Christian. Not because I have some great prayer life. Not any of that. But there has not been one moment in my life where I've gone through a season of struggle where I have not at times taken time in prayer to seek the Lord where he has not ministered some level of joy to my heart. That when I genuinely come before God, when I sit in his presence, when I wait upon him, that he brings joy. Doesn't mean everything just gets okay all of a sudden. Doesn't mean all the circumstances are fixed. Doesn't mean there isn't pain there. But suddenly I find a joy in my heart. Because in the presence of God is the fullness of joy. And you can taste that now in Jesus Christ. And when your faith is in him, when you come before the Father in him, you can begin to experience joy in the midst of perplexing sorrow that will one day be transformed for eternal joy for forever. That's the hope we have in Christ in life and in death. That's what we look forward towards. So let's fix our eyes on Christ because that's the path he walked. Because it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. Hebrews 12, 2 reminds us. So that you can enjoy the cross you have to bear to experience the joy that he's won for you. So let's follow him. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.